Hey, New Life Gillette Church, we are thrilled you decided to listen to our teaching on your favorite podcast app. If you made a decision to follow Christ today, would you let us know by visiting yes.newlifegillette.com. Here is this week's teaching. Okay, we're talking about Jesus uh, today and, and all semester. I got a question for you. How do you keep a boat from sinking. This is a little Duplo boat. The way they make boats now, it's hard to uh, sink them because they don't want them to sink for the kids to play with them. But I found one that will sink when you pour water into it. So the question is, how do you keep this boat from sinking? If there's a storm that hits, does the storm make this boat sink? Well, only if the storm gets into the boat, right? I mean, if the storm doesn't get into the boat, the boat's just fine. But as soon as the storm, or as soon as the water gets into the boat, the boat sinks. So what do you got to do to keep the boat from sinking? Well, it's quite simple. You just got to keep the storm from getting into the boat. You got to protect the boat from the storm. As long as the storm doesn't get into the boat, the boat is totally fine. So here's the principle for today. Don't let what is happening around you get inside of you and weigh you down. We got a world of pain, a world of problems around us at all times, and we have the option of assuming that pain, assuming that anger, assuming those problems into our lives or not. Okay, here's the story for today. Jesus and his disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee and a storm hits, right? Jesus could care less. He's asleep uh, on the boat. He's got a cushion and everything. Like this guy's conked for the night. But the disciples see the storm is coming and they are terrified. Like they, they do not want to sink. Why? Well, you got to understand the history of seas in their day. See, there was all this mythology and all these stories circulating in the day of Jesus that in the sea, were these sea monsters that come from beneath. And so they had all these stories about, well, remember, they don't have scuba, scuba gear. They don't have submarines. So nobody in this time can swim down to the bottom of the sea and see what's down there. So all they have is mythology. They have stories. And the, their stories tell them that there are doors to hell, gateways to hell at the bottom of the sea. So if you would go down to the bottom of the sea, then you're going to hell. And so as a result of these doorways, there would be these evil creatures that would come from hell into the seas. And so they believed that there were these monsters in the sea. So it was a terrifying place. And I think it is because of this mythology that Jesus picked so many fishermen to be his disciples, right? I mean, Jesus was a different kind of rabbi. Back in that day, usually a student picked their rabbi. But with Jesus, Jesus picked his disciples, and he chose to pick fishermen. Why did he pick fishermen? Well, I think it could be for one of two reasons. Either it's because they're incredibly brave, naturally, right? I mean, these guys are brave enough to sit on a tippable, sinkable boat every day over portals to hell. Okay, pretty brave. Or maybe it's not that they're brave. Maybe it's that they're not superstitious. Maybe it's that they don't believe all that mythology. 
The idea of portals to hell on the bottom of the sea just sounds stupid to them. And so they are skeptical. And Jesus could be motivated to pick some skeptical followers so that they are not swayed by every new theology and every new teaching. If Jesus the Messiah could finally convince them that he is the Messiah, then they're not going to just follow the next Messiah that just happens to come along and claim to be the Messiah. They're a little bit skeptical. They're too skeptical for that. I don't know which it is, but it's probably one of those. Okay, here's the story today being told from the Sea of Galilee in Israel. Hey, today we are out on the Sea of Galilee. This is where a lot of big events happen in Jesus's life. This is where he calmed the storm. Uh, he called some of his disciples here. They were out fishing in the boats. He walked on water here and brought Peter out with him. A lot of big events happened here at the Sea of Galilee. This is Mark 4, verse 30. Jesus asked, how can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? It is like a tiny mustard seed. Though this is one of the smallest of seeds, it grows to become one of the largest of plants with long branches where birds can come and find shelter. He used many such stories and illustrations to teach the people as much as they were able to understand. In fact, in his public teaching, he taught only with parables. But afterward, he was alone with his disciples. He explained the meaning to them. And came, came Jesus to the disciples. Let's cross to, cross to the end of the lake. He was already in the boat, so they started out leaving the crowd behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm arose. High waves began to break into the boat until it was nearly full of water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. Frantically, they woke him up, shouting, Teacher, don't you even care that we are going to drown? When he woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the water, Quiet down. Suddenly, the wind stopped and there was a great calm. And he asked them, why are you so afraid? Do you still not have faith in me? And they were filled with awe and said among themselves, who is this man that even the wind and waves obey him? So uh, I've heard sermons throughout my life preached on this story. And usually when people preach a sermon on this story, they use it kind of like a parable as if it's not a true event. And then they just talk about how the storms represent temptation or the storm represents pain or the storm represents people that hurt you. But if it's, this is more than just a parable. It can be used that way. And I think those are good sermons, but it's a true story. It's a true event that Jesus allowed to happen in the life of his disciples. And then he used it very intentionally to teach them a lesson. What lesson did he use this event to teach them? It was all about faith. Faith. Why do you have such little faith? When I think about my childhood, I think about one person above all other people in my childhood. It's my jerk of a twin brother, Steve. I don't know if you're watching right now, Steve, but I love you now. I didn't then. Uh, we were mortal enemies as kids when we were twins. And uh, that was mostly because of my hardheadedness and uh, him being stronger than me and all the rivalry that happened as a result of that. Here's Steve and I singing at Grandma Betty's house for the Christmas talent show. That's me. Somebody said, aw, thank you. That's Steve. Everybody say boo. 
me your hand, Steve. Told you he's a jerk. When you watch that video, what do you notice? We are twins, yes. You do notice that he's a jerk who won't hold my hand, even though the song says, give me your hand. You also notice that my twin brother is a lot taller than me, right? And to this day, he is a lot taller and meaner than me. I was always the shortest in the class, and he was always the tallest in the class. And I had a really hard time with this. And I'd go to my mom, and I'd be crying, and she'd promise me, Mike, it'll be okay. You're going to grow. He just grew earlier. You'll grow later, and usually when you grow later, you grow more, and you'll be fine. You'll make it. She was a liar, just to let you know. Steve just kept growing, and he kept getting taller in our whole lives. He just kept getting taller. We played basketball, and I was always the point guard, and he was always the post-center guy, and he scored all the points, set all these scoring records. So we had t-shirts that say, I pass, he shoots, and his says, he passes, I shoot, and we joked about it, and I hated it. I want the points. I don't want to pass anymore. I want to shoot. I want to be the big guy. And I began throughout my life to de develop some resentment and some anger. This built with me in me some very unhealthy anger and hard-headedness and stubbornness. And I never really learned how to deal with this. And I just kind of got angry. Mostly I got angry at God. I got depressed as a teenager. And I thought I would be depressed forever. I mean, wouldn't you if you looked like that? Just a goof. Remember when they used to brand the date on all the pictures? Wasn't that cool? They don't do that anymore. Back in the day. I used to have conversations with God. I'd be like, God, why did you make me this way? Why would you do this to me? Now I look back on it and I think, okay, height isn't that big of a deal, right? Who, who really cares? It doesn't really matter in life today. But when you're a teenager and when you're a kid, it's such a big deal. The reality is that when you are in a storm, it usually seems bigger than it actually is. And I vividly remember as a kid wrestling with God, yelling at God. And it is actually these wrestling match with, matches with God that made me pick a side. That made me eventually, got me to the point where I remember the day we were at a youth conference and I am on my knees bawling my eyes out because I had had this wrestling match with God and I finally decided, okay, I'll trust you anyway. All right, I won't run away. I'm not, I get it. And in this wrestling match, I drew closer to God. Largely, I'm up here because of that wrestling match. And I've learned throughout my life, whenever I doubt him, if I will allow my doubt of him and my anger toward him to draw me closer to him rather than make me run away from him, it always turns out better. Put your faith in Jesus and the storm cannot defeat you. Because the good news is much better than just the comforting words of a mother, it's going to be okay. Because I think a lot of us think that that's what God is. He's just comforting us. He's just kind of covering up the, the painful realities. 
That's not what he did for the disciples, right? He didn't just tell them it'll be okay in the storm. He calmed the storm. He fixed the problem. So I hit a growth spurt in college and Jesus calmed the storm. I don't know which miracle is greater, but I'm gratefully, grateful for both. This is the reality. He had another growth spurt too, so he's still taller than me. But here's the question. How do we learn to trust God in the storm? And that's kind of where we're going to land today. What does it take to allow the storm to build our faith rather than push us away from Christ? Because here's the reality. You're going to face a storm again. And you're going to be tempted to blame God You're going to be tempted to run away from God. And maybe even the storm is your fault. Maybe the storm is somebody you love that has hurt you. But for whatever reason, you are going to be tempted to doubt God because of the storm. Now that we are on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we recognize that his promise of healing for us is much more than just physical healing. His promise of life for us is much more than just life in this world. His promise to us, now that he resurrected from the dead and made it possible, his promise to us is eternal life. It's eternal protection. It's eternal healing. That's what he promises to us. So before we go too far, I'd like to pause here and talk about what are some of the reasons that people give when they choose not to put their faith in Jesus. The first one you've heard a million times is is that bad things happen. Eh, There can't be a good God if bad things happen in the world. This is the common objection. In other words, what these people are expecting is constant miracles. Like every time any threat or any kind of pain or any kind of doubt or anything happens, God should be snapping his finger and making it all go away. You should be making everything good. That's what they expect. Just constant miracles from from God. There was a, a pastor one time that went in to get his hair cut. He goes and he sits down at the barber's chair. I don't know what they call him barbers. I don't know what they call him now, but he sits down to get his hair cut. And the barber says, are you a pastor? And the pastor says, yes. And he says, why? There's no God. The pastor says, what makes you say that? He's like, there's no way there could be a God with so much pain in the world. There's way too many bad things happening to tell me that there is a God. So the pastor gets his hair cut and and after he's done, he goes outside and he finds a homeless man. And this homeless man has really long hair and a long beard, obviously has not been cut in a while and hasn't taken a shower in a while. And so the pastor grabs this homeless man and and takes him into the barbershop. And he announces, I don't believe barbers exist. Barber says, I'm right here. What do you mean I don't exist? He's like, how could somebody have long hair like this if a barber exists? Barber says, the problem isn't that I don't exist. The problem is he never came to me. And I think this is the reality of the world we live in. It's that we want to stand back from a distance and tell God what he should be doing. Here's what I expect. Here's what I know is best. And I expect God to do that thing rather than going to him and asking him, okay, what are the solutions to our problems? What is the solution to pain? Because he has an answer to that question. And it's better answer than anybody in this world can give. 
He says the solution to your pain is not a temporary solution. It's not just to fix it real quick. The solution to your pain is an eternal solution. It's eternal healing. And we say, no, that's not what I want. I want you to take this wound away. I want you to take this illness away. And God says, you may want that, but it's not what's best for you. Because the reality is, if everything was perfect in your life, if you had everything you wanted, you would have no need for God, right? And the worst thing that could ever happen to you is for you to determine you have no need for God. Because it is that understanding that will send you to hell. It is that understanding that will eternally separate you from God. So what he says is ultimately good for you is eternity with him. And so he says, you do need a little pain. You do need to experience some problems in your life. You say, no, you, you got to keep people from being hungry. You got to keep storms from wrecking things. That's what you should be doing So the problem we realize is not that you don't believe in God, it's that you think you are the God. You think your answers, your prescription of what will be better is better than his prescription. That your answers are better than his answers. Then there's other people on the other side of the spectrum and they don't believe in God. It's not because uh, he doesn't perform miracles, it's because he claims to perform miracles. These people don't believe in God because they're skeptical about what the Bible says about him doing healing blind people and all that stuff. Impossible. I don't believe it. I'm skeptic. And I get it. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe in God when we hear about miracles. But if God is real, if somebody created the world and it's not just an accident that appeared out of nothing, if God created the world, wouldn't you expect him to perform miracles? Wouldn't you expect that he would do things that we can't explain because he's outside of the world? He's not confined by the natural so he can do things that are supernatural. If he claims to be God and doesn't do miracles, then then you should question him. The reality is he's a healthy balance of both. He does the supernatural when it's good and he doesn't when it's good because he is good. And that's good news for us. Because if his only solutions to our problems were physical solutions, were just giving us some food when we were hungry and healing us when we were sick, if that's all he has to offer us, then our eternal reality is meaningless. Then we have no purpose. Then it's just do what feels good and die when you die. Who cares? And it's over tomorrow. Because... The whole world's out to dinner and we're looking at the world's menu and we got questions. Like, what, what do you got for uh, where does the world come from? Well, that's just an accident. We don't know. We, we don't really know. We go to the world, we're like, okay, what do you got for morality? What, what, what do you got serving up for that today? And they're like, eh, do what feels good. I don't know. What do you got for purpose? They're, oh, there's no purpose. You're an accident. They got no answers to the big questions of life. So what do you have? Well, we got some pretty pictures of naked ladies on the computer screen. We got that. We, what, what do you got to my like depression? Well, we got some pills that can cover it up. We got some entertainment. We got some hobbies. 
We got some drugs. We can cover up. We can't solve your problems, but we can sure cover them up with a lot of pretty stuff. We got Prozac. They got nothing. The world has nothing to solve our problems. And God says, I've got a solution, but it's not the solution that you want. It's better than that. The other objection that I hear for why we don't put faith in God is one that honestly I can relate to more, and it's that Christians hurt me, or I used to go to church and they were a bunch of hypocrites or, so, or something like that. They, they blame God's followers rather than blaming God. Jesus is perfect, so I can't blame him. I'll blame Jesus's followers. And I get this. I mean, if I see some disrespectful kid, I'm not going to their parents for parenting advice, right? Usually we look to followers to reflect how good the leader is. If I'm running a business and I'm trying to hire a new CEO, I'm not going to go to some failing company to hire their CEO. If I own the greatest football team to ever play in the NFL, I'm not going to fire Andy Reid and go hire Nathaniel Hackett, right? Why would I do that? No, you had your chance. I can say this now because the Broncos have moved on too, so... You had your chance with him. Your your followers did not perform well. Your followers lost. That must mean something about your leadership. We assume that followers reflect their leadership. And this is actually good news for Christians. Because you can look at a family and you can find a disbehavior by a kid. And maybe that's your only interaction with the family and assume that the parents are bad. Or you can take a bigger look at the family and realize, actually, they got four really good kids and that one kid just messed up one time. Maybe I just didn't have all the information. Well, let me give you more information. Did you know that Christians are five times less likely to be depressed? They're five times less likely to regularly experience anxiety. Did you know that Christians are six times less likely to regularly feel hopeless in life? Like if you will actually adopt the teachings of Christ and you will pursue his prescriptions for your problems, it will actually make a difference. Like it is measurably true that Christians are healthier, that they live longer, that they're more blessed. Look at any study, it's, it's proven, it's true. His prescription for your life will work. But let me also say this to non-Christians. Hey, be patient with us. Because even though we're more likely to be healthy, there's a lot of times when we're sick. Even though we do our best and God is fixing us, God is healing us, God is working through us, we're not there yet. We're not perfect yet. And I will screw up. Let me promise you I will screw up. I will be a hypocrite. I will sin. I will forget your birthday. I am not perfect. The guy I follow is, but I'm not a great follower all the time. Let me say this to Christians. It's not good enough to just stop there. It's not good enough to just say, I'm screwed up. Because the reality is, when the world looks at us, they assume that we represent Christ. And that's actually what we were called to do. The Bible calls us Christ's bride. We are one with him. 
And he even says that we are his body. So we represent him well. So we continue to grow. We continue to become more and more like him so that when the world does look at us, they at least get a glimpse of who he is. That's our calling. All the while recognizing that Jesus is the only human in the universe who is perfect. And if you reject the only perfect person because his followers are imperfect, then you are rejecting your only hope for true happiness. You are, you are rejecting your only hope for eternal purpose. If you want a quick path to meaninglessness, assume that this life is all there is. And you'll have no surprise when you realize the world is depressed but I get it. In this world, we will experience pain and we will experience problems that will cause us to doubt God. It even happened to Jesus' followers when he was alive, his disciples. It even happened to them. They watched him heal blind people and perform all kinds of unbelievable miracles, yet they still sometimes doubted him when pain came along. When, When they faced trials in this life, they doubted him. Sometimes I always came back to him, but even Peter, one of Jesus's first disciples, the one who was arguably the leader of the disciples denied Christ when Christ was being tortured. But I have a question for you. Did the storm surprise Jesus? To which anybody who believes in him says, okay, obviously not. He's Jesus. No, he didn't. But I would take it one step further. I think that Jesus caused the storm. Now, Scripture doesn't say that. That is my guess. That is my assumption. And maybe he didn't. But if this storm was used by Jesus to draw his disciples closer to him, to make them more dependent on him, then the outcome of the storm was actually a good outcome. Then the pain was actually good for them. The problems was actually a good problem. A.W. Tozer says, God cannot use a man greatly until he wounds him deeply. Now, does that mean that God causes every storm in your life? Absolutely not. Sin causes plenty of storms in your life, whether it's your sin or somebody else around you sinning against you or Adam and Eve's original sin in the garden. Those sins are what cause the pain in your life. But Jesus didn't stop them. God hasn't stopped them. Why? Because he recognizes that he can take the pain and cause something good to come of it. That the, that the pain can produce in you perseverance and faith in him. Because if you have no pain in your life, if you never experience pain, then you'll never think you need God. What need do I have for God? Good for, for God. I'm good. There's no problem. I'll just keep going the way I am. It's not until we have pain or we recognize that our way isn't working that we finally turn and say yes to God. Why did Jesus say it is very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, apparently, rich people don't experience enough pain in their lives. They believe that they 
are enough. They don't have faith in God because they have faith in themselves. And so it requires some pain in their lives so that they will eventually come to the conclusion, I need somebody else. I need some help. I need somebody bigger. More, I need somebody stronger than me. Because if we want to have more faith, then we have to exercise our faith muscles. And the way that our faith muscles are exercised is through pain, is through trials, is through storms in our lives. It's also a reason that we choose to do hard things. It's why we choose to do things that require faith. That's how we grow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this risk. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after this thing that I think God has called me to. And the only way I could possibly succeed in it is if God does a miracle. If God does something, I'm going to do something crazy in the world's eyes, believing that God can do what I cannot. And what does faith give us? The trials in this life produce perseverance. Faith gives us bounce back. The other day I was reading uh, in the book of Psalms and Moses wrote this. But the godly will flourish like palm trees. I started wondering, why did he pick palm trees? I mean, palm trees flourish like a palm. I don't think of flourishing when I think of a palm tree. They're not the biggest or the most lush trees. The fruit that grows on them isn't even that good. Like I'm, I'm no coconut lover. It's like, why, why did you pick palm trees? So I Googled it, and here's what I found. Palm trees have bounce back. They can withstand incredible winds because when the winds bend them, they bounce back. Yes, they experience the pain of the storm, yet it does not break them. They bounce back. That's what faith gives us. It gives us the ability to withstand storms that before we had faith in God and before our faith matured, we could not have survived. That's what Psalms tells us that faith gives us. I even read that storms actually strengthen the roots of palm trees. So God allows the storms in our lives because they have a way of growing our faith. Do they cause some people to run away from God? Do storms and pain cause people to run away from God? Yes. But those who are truly God's children, when the storm hits, their, their roots will grow down deeper. And they'll run to him rather than away from him. Moses says, and grow strong like the cedars of Lebanon. After COVID-19, uh, something hard happened to the church. We started to see 20-somethings disappear. We do this survey every year where we ask our people, how old are you? And one thing that we recognized after COVID-19 is that attendance in other ages were growing, but the 20-somethings were disappearing. And so we started asking other our sister churches, this is happening to you too? And churches around the world were losing 20-somethings. 
And we started asking ourselves the question. And I think it is largely because it is a demographic that is not experienced in enough storms in their life. And so their roots have not grown deep enough, have not grown strong enough. It's a generation of parents who were helicopter parents who protected them from pain and shielded them from storms. It's a generation of people who are not yet old enough to go through the realities of life and and the pains that naturally come as a result. I mean, life is hard. So when they experienced the storm of COVID-19, they didn't know how to handle it. Their roots weren't strong enough and they broke. If you will give God time, if you will trust him even when you doubt him, If you will choose not to run away from him, then in storms, he will make you stronger. He will develop in you perseverance. He will develop in you bounce back that will allow you to withstand storms later in life that you never could have imagined withstanding earlier in your life. And how does he do this? Moses says, for they are transplanted to the Lord's own house. That's good soil. They flourish in the courts of our God. Do you remember at the triumphal entry? So Jesus is riding on a donkey and and the people of Jerusalem have come out. They think Jesus is going to be the new king and overthrow the government and he's going to set up his own government. And so they're trying to get close to him and they throw their coats out on the road so his donkey can ride on a nice clean road. And they're chanting, Hosanna, and what are they waving? Palm branches. They didn't know it yet, but a storm was coming. And Jesus was about to do something that was going to give them the ability to withstand the storms. A storm was coming, but Jesus was about to bring healing. Wave the palm branches. Why? Because Jesus' faithfulness in the storm saved us in our storms. Wave the palm branches. Thank you, Jesus. Give me some of that bounce back. As we put our faith in him, our roots grow deeper. We celebrate because Jesus has accomplished everything necessary for us to be adopted into his kingdom There's no trying harder to be good enough. There's no, I gotta be, I gotta get rid of all these bad habits and I gotta get rid of all these sins so I can be good enough to get into heaven. He did it all. He went to the cross and he died so that you could be saved. He was good enough because he knew you would fail. He was good enough because you couldn't be good enough. That's the good news. And when we keep that front and center and we celebrate his goodness, when we allow his goodness to shadow out all of our pain and all of our problems and all of our screw-ups, then it develops within us perseverance that, that can withstand. Why? Because it says that he will give us peace that passes understanding. Peace that is inexplainable to anybody but a Christian. Because my peace does not come from some temporary earthly healing. My peace comes from an eternal promise of heaven. An eternal promise of forgiveness. God, I thank you that that you are right now drawing people to yourself. 
I pray that you will do right now what I cannot and give people perseverance. That those people here today who are experiencing pain or storms or problems in their life, that you would use it to grow them, to mature them. That rather than running away from you and blaming you, they will run to you and allow you to solve. And I pray even, yes, for eternal healing, but even for physical healing, that you will give us perseverance in these storms and allow them to make us into the people you created us to be. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.